It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. And the big winner this week is Shohai Otani, who just signed a $700 million contract with the Dodgers. Uh, The Athletics says this is the richest deal in sports, not just in baseball. He'll be playing for the game's most successful regular season franchise over the past decade in the L.A. Dodgers, but one that hasn't won a World Series in a full season since 1988. Trying to make the point that even if you spend basically zillions of dollars on one player, uh, it doesn't automatically mean you get to win the World Series. For those who are not following this, the reason that he is creating so much buzz and that he is such an incredibly talented athlete is that he both is a terrific pitcher, but also a terrific batter with a high batting average. His problem is that he keeps getting injured. Uh, you know, Even comparing it to the NFL, I think the highest contract was $450 million. This guy's at seven hundred. So congrats to him. I can't believe that Elon Musk, who as recently as last year backed a ban on Twitter for Alex Jones, has now not only restored his X account, but did a Twitter Spaces discussion with him. This is a man who basically argued for years, tormenting the families who lost children, that the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre was a hoax. It was staged. It wasn't real. He was banned back in 2018 by the previous management. Oh, so Musk put up one of these unscientific polls. Should he be allowed back? 70% said yes. Hmm. So, you know, then Musk can say the people have spoken, but, you know, these online polls are far from scientific. Okay, on the King Charles show, that's what CNN calls uh, the, I guess, weekly program it has with former NBA star Charles Barkley and CBS's Gail King. Get it? King Charles. Anyway. Barkley, who I find entertaining as a sports commentator, said that supporters of Donald Trump are, and I'm quoting here, a small little group of nutty people. When pressed about whether these supporters might object to that phrase, Barkley, you know, went in for the slam dunk. I only call them that because they are. They're crazy. They're like your drunk friend. Like, once your friend's drunk, there's nothing you can say to him. Okay, I don't know that I really value Barkley's opinion on politics, but, you know, he's basically insulted about half the country. This is like the basket of deplorables and other phrases used to apply to the many, many people who support the former president. You can criticize Trump all you want, but Barkley goes there in terms of saying, eh, people follow him, are all nutty. On Fox and Friends this morning, Steve Ducey had this to say 
as uh, House Republicans gear up for a vote on whether to proceed or whether to, you know, officially authorize, because it's already underway, the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Ducey. Republicans at this point don't have, they've got lots of ledgers and spreadsheets, but they have not connected the dots. They've connected the dots, the Department of Justice did on Hunter, but they have not shown where Joe Biden, you know, did anything illegally. I think that's a fair assessment. That may change. But it's interesting to hear it on the Fox Morning Show. That, that may, and the other regular co-host, Brian Kilmeade and others, were not buying Ducey's argument, but that's why you want to have different points of view. Story number one. So when I got to the Washington Bureau yesterday morning, I knew I had to tear up the show. Because Elizabeth McGill, president of the University of Pennsylvania, had resigned late on Saturday. A lot of people hadn't even heard it. Now, she didn't just decide, uh, you know, I don't, I'm tired of this controversy, I'm going to resign. I mean, the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania said she was unfit for that job. So did the Democratic Senator John Fetterman. So did the donor who pulled the $100 million gift to Penn. And you know what? There's no defense here. There's no defense whatsoever because questioned again and again, and a lot of these questions came from New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, and some people are concentrating their fire on Stefanik, but it didn't matter who asked the questions. The question was legitimate. The questions were something that a university president should be able to handle. Do you believe that there is genocide against the Jewish people? Do you believe people should be able to say that on your campus? And she did the same thing that Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, did. Uh, It was all, it depends on the context. She said, depends on the context. No, it doesn't. It doesn't depend on the context. It's always an outrage because you have Hamas vowing to wipe Israel off the map, celebrating every civilian Jew who's killed. Israel doesn't do that. Israel may have allowed the civilian death toll to get too high in Gaza. I'm open to that argument. But asked about genocide against Jewish people. We got the same, uh, well, you know, maybe it depends. We have to look at our rules, our code of conduct. Couldn't answer the question. Next day, she makes an apology video trying to save her job. Next day, Harvard's Claudine Gay also apologized. That was in an interview with the Harvard Crimson. I'll get to that. But her position, the position of Elizabeth McGill was untenable. You can't go up there at a four-hour hearing and then the next day say, never mind. I mean, I'm glad she apologized. But what did she think was going to happen? So here's a broader piece by Andrew Sullivan on Substack saying, 
Might be too much to expect at these congressional hearings. We'll wake people up to the toxic collapse of America's once great Ivy League, but I can hope, can't I? The mediocrities, says Sullivan, smirked, finessed, condescended, and stonewalled. Take a good look at them. These are the people who now select our elites, and they select them as they select every single member of the faculty and every student by actively discriminating against members of certain privileged groups and aggressively favoring other marginalized ones. I don't know that you could extend it to every student who's accepted, but to continue, they themselves were appointed in exactly the same way from DEI-approved pools of candidates. Diversity, equity. As a Harvard dean, Claudine Gay's top priority was making more progress on diversity meaning intensifying the already systematic race, sex, and gender discrimination that defines the place in the hearings. Gay actually said with a straight face that we embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. This is the president whose university mandates all students attend a Title IX training session where they're told that fat phobia and cis heterosexism are forms of violence and that using the wrong pronouns constitutes abuse. So those things get the university presidents all riled up. Mass murder reviews, not so much. Gay also Hounded out of her position, a brilliant and popular professor who dared to say on TV that biological sex is binary. Oh my God, you can't say that. 1.46% per six, 1. Excuse me, of faculty at Harvard call themselves conservative. call themselves liberal or very liberal. Ranked 248th out of 248 colleges this year on free speech. And Penn was number 247, according to an interest group. And interest group, excuse me again. Um, Critics who keep pointing out double standards when it comes to the inflammatory speech of pro-Palestinian students miss the point. These are not double standards. There's a single standard. It is fine to malign, abuse, and denigrate oppressors and forbidden to do so against the oppressed. If a member of an oppressor class says something edgy, it's a form of violence. If a member of an oppressed class commits actual violence, it's speech. I mean, Andrew not pulling any punches here. That's why many Harvard students instantly supported a fundamentalist terror cult that killed, tortured, systematically raped, and kidnapped Jews just for being Jews in their own country. They've been taught that's the only moral position to take. The new anti-Semitism is simply a subsidiary of the entire rubric of anti-whiteness 
that is taught at these schools. So, Sullivan, not the only one weighing on, in on this. By the way, New York Times today says the president of Harvard facing escalating pressure to resign as prominent alumni, donors, politicians called for Claudine Gay's ouster. But a group of faculty members rallied to support her because they undoubtedly agree with her, arguing she was being railroaded for a moment of poorly worded remarks about anti-Semitism. The Harvard board is supposed to meet today. 500 faculty members signed a petition urging um, that political pressures must be resisted, and it's at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom. Again, Gay apologized the next day. So she's not defending the remarks. It wasn't a moment. It was a long hearing. Never could bring herself to say, this is unacceptable. We cannot defend genocide of, of anybody at Harvard. Couldn't get there. Both Elizabeth McGill, former president, and Claudine Gay, and then as the president of MIT, wouldn't say it, couldn't say it. They're so drenched in this ideology. So what uh, Gay told the Harvard Crimson was that she was sad that her words had amplified the pain of Jewish students on campus with her performance at the House hearing. There are some who have confused a right to free expression with the idea that Harvard will condone calls for violence against Jewish students. Calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group, are vile. They have no place at Harvard. And those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. Why on earth could you not say some semblance of that at the congressional hearing? What did these people think was going to happen if they went up and gave this word salad, this refusal to take a stand? You can't imagine them saying, if blacks were accused, were targeted for genocide, Oh, you know, it, that depends on the context. Or Muslims were targeted for genocide. Oh, you know, it, it depends on the situation. We'd have to look at it. What, does it rise to the level of harassment? You can't imagine that. But they did that. All three college presidents did that at the House hearing. Now, this is a fascinating little detail uh, dug up by the Times. Both Claudine Gay and Elizabeth McGill prepared separately for their congressional testimony. I mean, you know they had to do a lot of prep with teams from the law firm Wilmer Hale. Wilmer Hale also had a meeting with MIT's president, Sally Kornbluth. Lawyers for Wilmer Hale sat in the front row at the hearing. Preparing for congressional testimony involves blending legal caution with political savvy and common sense, legal experts say. Well, you know what? If I was uh, at any of these schools in a position of authority, I wouldn't pay this law firm. Whatever these lawyers told these three university presidents was exactly the wrong advice. You hire them because you're in a crisis situation to guide you through what you know is going to be 
you know, you're going to get pounded at this hearing. I don't, I would say they didn't really earn their keep. Wilmer Hale, I guess it specializes in this sort of thing for universities. And the New York Times has a follow-up that's not very different from what conservatives have been saying. In fact, this is how it's framed. For years, conservatives have struggled to persuade American voters that the left-wing tilt of higher education is not only wrong, but dangerous. Universities and their students, they've argued, have been increasingly clenched by suffocating ideologies, political correctness in one decade, overweening social justice in another, wokeism most recently, that shouldn't be dismissed as academic fads or harmless zeal. That validation that they have sought seemed to finally arrive this fall as campuses uh, were convulsed with protests against Israel's military campaign in Gaza, which, remember, started this war with a surprise attack that included the worst kind of atrocities, rape as a tool of war, murder, kidnapping, beheading, uh, taking as hostages both 85-year-old grandmothers and children as young as two or four. Okay, I just had to remind everybody. For Republicans, the rise of anti-Semitic speech and the timid responses of some academic leaders presented a long-sought opportunity to flip the political script and cast liberals or their institutions as hateful and intolerant. Here's Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox. What I'm describing is a grave danger inherent in assenting to the race-based ideology of the radical left. Institutional anti-Semitism and hate are among the poison fruits of your institution's cultures. And, you know, by framing it this way, you're saying, oh, Republicans and conservatives always wanted this, and now this has given them new ammunition. Well, many Democrats joined the attack, as I mentioned earlier. Governor Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania. He's a Democrat. Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. He's a Democrat. Here's Sam Altman, of you know the guy who was dumped and then reinstated as the head of OpenAI. For a long time, I said anti-Semitism, particularly on the American left, was not as bad as people claimed. I'd like to just state that I was totally wrong. And Altman, by the way, is a major Democratic donor. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Number two, CNN announcing this week that it will hold or host two Republican debates in January before the Iowa and New Hampshire primary votes, both on college campuses. And ABC is also going to do one in New Hampshire. That's been a long, long tradition. Uh, but as far as CNN, one of those schools seemed to be out of the loop. St. Anselm College, where I've attended presidential debates, said on Friday that the school had no idea what CNN was talking about. 
executive director of its uh, politics and political library at St. Anselm, tweeting that making such an announcement breached the RNC debate rules and that the school had not planned or booked that debate at this time. Doesn't mean it won't happen. And basically the RNC has said, okay, we're done, we're out of it. You can go and do any debate you want. And that's why these CNN, possibly at least one of the two, and ABC, um, the candidates are going to agree to do that. Megyn Kelly, one of the moderators of the News Nation debate last week, and I said on the air, I thought News Nation did a very good job. She is responding to people questioning a video that during a break in the debate in Alabama last week, Chris Christie came over to her. And was, she says, kind of getting up in my grill. There's all sorts of speculation about what was happening there. I will tell you. It was not off the record. He was pissed off. He was mad he wasn't getting enough questions. Which, actually, he had a point. And he said, I made it up at this stage, and I haven't been able to speak in a while. And you know, I should have been brought in on that last debate. Meaning round, I guess. And you know, Megan told him, we're coming to you. You're going to be happy in the second hour, which I lived up to. But number one, he was right that in that last run, he had been excluded. And the reason that happened is we let them fight in the first 40 minutes of the debate. And therefore, that comes at the expense of something. And where you insert yourself, Chris Christie, on this earlier fight, it's at the expense of something that's coming. We were not wedded to our rundown. We had like 40 questions going out there. Our goal was to ask 10 of them. And... Megan goes on to say, I knew very well Christie was going to get a Trump question having to do with immigration at the top of the next hour. So it was totally fair to him. And he's polling at 2%, okay? In no debate ever, and I've now done six of them, have we given so many questions to the guy who's at 3% as to the person who's in the lead? I'm sorry, Governor Christie, that's the way it is. Okay, so how did it end up? Vivek Ramaswamy, 22 minutes. DeSantis, 21 minutes. Haley, 17 minutes. Christie, 16 minutes and 52 seconds. But if you're saying that the guy, I mean, he kept interrupting, that somebody at 2 or 3% shouldn't get the most questions, how do you explain Vivek? And there was one point where, I think it was Megan, might have been one of the other moderators, saying, okay, we're coming to you now, Governor Christie. In the beginning, when he went 17 minutes without a question, and then somebody interrupted, and there was another round where they didn't come to him until after minute 17. Uh, I'll make this number three because uh, Megan Kelly, who's a serious XM host, and obviously Spotlight is on her now because of her role in that debate. She said on her show that if Donald Trump is sent to jail before Election Day, the country will burn. It's an exact quote. I don't think anybody thinks anything really changed as a result of the debate. So once again, Trump won because if nothing changed, he's the winner. He's 50 points ahead. By the way, there's a new Iowa poll out that actually has Donald Trump breaking 50%. With Ron DeSantis at 19% in Iowa, and Nikki Haley at 16%. 
And that's because DeSantis has basically bet all his chips on Iowa. Nikki Haley been, uh, betting many of her chips on New Hampshire. And Donald Trump has got the most chips. So, Megan asked her guests about an editorial National Review saying that Judge Tanya Chutkin might not let Trump go free on bond when he is likely convicted in that federal case in D.C. There will be riots. The country will burn if she sends him to jail before November of 24. So where do we go from this day to that? Jim Garrity, one of the guests from National Review, says DeSantis and Haley should form a unity ticket, either Haley-DeSantis or DeSantis-Haley. I don't have a particularly strong preference one way or the other, but that's the way you could get the most Haley supporters to jump on board with DeSantis and vice versa. Instead, they're fighting for a very distant second place. Speaking of the former president, story four. I got to leave with this because for the last several days, all the cable networks have been teasing the fact that today at the New York civil fraud trial, Donald Trump would testify as the last witness for the defense. In other words, this is the time they get to call their witnesses. They were going to have Eric Trump last week, decided not to. And Trump was going to get friendly questioning from his own lawyers. But he's changed his mind. He will not go back on the witness stand. Trump writing on Truth Social, I have already testified to everything and have nothing more to say other than this is a complete and total election interference, parentheses, Biden campaign, witch hunt. So, I will not be testifying on Monday. All caps. First of all, whether you agree with the charges, don't agree with the charges, and there are, of course, four indictments, the Biden campaign did not make these indictments happen. Two of them are federal, two of them are state. New York and Georgia. And I actually think Trump made the right decision. I mean, he had a long stretch of testimony when called by the prosecution in Manhattan. And he he made all his points, in addition to attacking the judge, attacking uh, Attorney General Letitia James. He talked about you know, how many of his properties were undervalued. He talked about Mar-a-Lago, where that was the case, but not by the New York court. And he talked about how, you know, valuations are subjective. He talked about how um, all the uh, bankers who provided loans and, and the accounting firms we're all given this disclaimer that you should do your own research, do your own due diligence. So basically, he was just going to repeat those points under more sympathetic questioning from his own team. So I don't know. Was there any point to that? And why did Trump change his mind at the last minute? Meanwhile... As the Washington Post reports, top officials in the Trump campaign 
have been trying to quell discussions about his possible second term in the White House amid alarms about authoritarianism and reports about personnel. Now, by the way, where do those alarms about authoritarianism and personnel come from? Mostly from the media. I mean, this is what I led with on the show yesterday. The Atlantic, whole issue. New York Times, every day it seems like. Every other day, sometimes, but every day. Washington Post, writing pieces after piece after piece after piece about the dangers of Trump's second term. Now, I did mean to mention when I was talking about the university presidents that once Elizabeth McGill uh, decided to resign or was pushed out, kind of a combination, uh, I came in to work and I said, you know, we're getting this in the show. And I had to dump some other things or truncate them because I, I think it was the biggest story in America last week. You have to deal with it because it's not just a question of whether one or two or three university presidents resign. It's a question of schools across the country where many Jewish students are afraid or intimidated or just damn uncomfortable with the pro-Palestinian or pro-Gaza demonstrations and the way that their schools, their presidents of their colleges have handled it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, back to uh, Trump. This is top official Susie Wiles and Chris La Savita, putting out statements, the second statement of its kind in just uh, a couple of weeks, I think. Let us be very specific. Unless a message is coming directly from President Trump or an authorized member of his campaign team, no aspect of future presidential staffing or policy announcements should be deemed official. They're worried about this whole dictator thing. They're worried about this whole authoritarian thing. And Axios ran a piece where it was like, here are the likely candidates for all these jobs. Enlisted a bunch of people who, you know, are very much Trump loyalists, Stephen Miller and others. People publicly discussing potential administration jobs for themselves or their friends, says this letter, are in fact hurting President Trump and themselves. They are an unwelcome distraction. And yes, actually, uh, Trump campaign officials cited this Axios report. And, you know, it was basically this, here's who we think might be getting the jobs. Tucker Carlson for vice president? I mean, who the hell knows? Washington Post and other outlets have previously reported that Trump and his allies have drawn up specific plans to use the government to punish his opponents, including discussions of invoking the Insurrection Act on the first day in office. But that's okay, because the first day is the day that he would be a dictator. Only the first day. And by the way, instead of having statements from his two top campaign officials, all Donald Trump had to do was take those two invitations by Sean Hannity, not one, but two, at the uh, Fox Town Hall in Iowa, when Hannity says, and you are promising America tonight that you will not use government to abuse power, to uh, gain retribution against anyone. And Trump, of course, said, 
only on day one. Said it twice. I don't think if he had given a different answer that would have shut it down. But I do think it would have helped. And instead, you know, he this is a savvy guy. He can then later claim it's a joke or whatever. But he, you know, he declined an opportunity to say, I will not be a dictator. Maybe on the other days. And of course, he went on to say, drill, 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 and close the border, which Hannity himself said, that's not abuse of power. And then he just pivoted away from it. All right, number five. Let's start off with the other war. Vladimir Zelensky is heading here to Washington to try to rally support for his struggling nation as the Russian military today just bombarded Kiev, the capital, with the most intense salvo of ballistic missiles in months. Missiles racing toward the city have been uh, shot out of the sky. Of course, not all of them are shot out of the sky. Uh, This came after uh, Vladimir Putin made a video sipping champagne in Moscow, celebrating waning Western support for Kiev. This is a gift to Putin. This is unbelievable that this can't be worked out in Congress. European Union will seek to approve some $50 billion in aid for Ukraine, but who, uh, Hungary threatening to veto that effort? Well, then the countries can just give it on their own, on their own, the other countries. Zelensky will meet with the new speaker, Mike Johnson, while Ukrainians are hopeful, the U.S. will not abandon them. The resistance of a growing and influential faction of Republicans comes at a difficult moment. After all that we have done to support Ukraine, I don't get it. How can we abandon Ukraine now? Look, I know the Republicans want more immigration restrictions and money for the border. Why on earth can that not be worked out through compromise? Because even Israel isn't getting its aid. This is the whole package, over $100 billion. And I have to say, you know, President Biden is a guy who served in the Senate for 36 years. Why isn't he calling in Republican senators and Democrats and pushing knocking heads together to get a compromise. You don't get it by just giving a speech. He's made the point. The money runs out at the end of this year. You know, it's possible that Putin could succeed in taking over Ukraine. And Zelensky said something about in Switzerland, he would be willing to open peace talks or talks about what a potential peace deal would recommend. I mean, he has to look out for the future of his people. But I'd like to see Biden not just give a speech, not just put out statements. He knows how the legislature works. I'd like to see him deal with this more directly. As for the continued criticism of a second trunk term, Donald Trump has made it clear he sees NATO as a drain on American resources by freeloaders. There was a lot of criticism along that lines when he was president. Uh, He's held that view for at least a quarter of a century. 
Yet as he runs to regain the White House, says the New York Times, Trump has said little about his intentions. Just uh, we have to finish the process we began under my administration of fundamentally reevaluating NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. Not exactly a vote of confidence. That vague line has generated enormous uncertainty and anxiety among European allies and American supporters of the country's traditional foreign policy role. And European ambassadors and think tank officials have been making pilgrimages to associates of Trump to inquire about his intentions. It's a legitimate concern. And Trump, of course, is not going to say now, well, we're going to pull out of NATO. But I would say it's not impossible to imagine unless serious structural changes are made. And this, of course, is an effort that began during Trump's first four years in office. Well, thanks for sticking with me. It's always true on Mondays. I've got so much to cover. Like a baseball pitcher making $700 million dollars as well as war, peace, politics, you name it. Always appreciate your time. See you back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 